Next day, Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone, and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me, and, decide, and I decide between one person and another, and I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, What you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice, and God will be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God, and you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens, and let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure, and all this people also will go to their place in peace. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And they judged the people at all times. Any hard case they brought to Moses, but any small matter they decided themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went away to his own country. This is God's word for us today. Please be seated. Thanks, Chad, and thank you, team, for leading us musically. Jordan, I have two words for you. Outdoor kitty. Sorry, Noel, that may not be what you want. I'm going to get in trouble. Uh, <laughs> so exciting to hear uh, earlier from Mark about the receptivity of our brothers and sisters in Christ in Africa to the Bible that they don't have, how easy it is to take for granted what you are used to. So just hearing God's word read and getting to open in a moment, I'd invite you to just pray with me, God, as we come before you now to hear from you, just as we have sung to you and received communion from you. Um, we seek now to receive your message for us. And so as you have uh, instructed, as you've written a prayer in the Bible and the Psalms, we ask now that you would open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things from your word. And it's in Christ's name we ask these things. Amen. I want to talk today um, about maybe an unusual subject. We're going to talk about how to kill our church. Merry Christmas. Um, <laughs> actually, the Bible is going to lead us to talk about this today, um, not, of course, so that we'll do it, but precisely so that we can be aware of it and be sure not to do it unintentionally. But sort of with that in mind, this morning's passage really is about how to kill the congregation of God's people. Uh, it's about how we can kill a church in a subtle way, in a subtle way. 
Uh, many churches, uh, unfortunately, become unhealthy, some of which completely die out. That's happened in our own community. I've known some of these situations and the pastors that have pastored such churches. There's a lot of different reasons that that can happen, a lot of different things that can contribute to a church being unhealthy. Uh, some of the more obvious ones would be doctrinal drift, getting away from the truths that God has taught and the church is founded on. Um, either abusive leadership in churches or on the other extreme, completely passive leadership in churches. Often um, congregational infighting uh, amongst members of the church that just decide they can't get along and they never resolve differences, so they just feud for years. I mean, all of these kinds of things are fairly obvious ways um, that have contributed to tanking many churches. But today's passage warns us about a very specific threat to the health of a church, and it's one that's every bit as, as lethal, and yet it tends to be much more difficult to detect. And the threat that we're talking about is an over-professionalization of the ministry. That's what Exodus chapter 18 is about, which is where we're at in our Bibles this morning. I want you to encourage you to grab your Bible and turn to Exodus chapter 18. Uh, what we've seen to date in this, this book is that God has rescued his people as they've cried out to him from slavery in Egypt through his mediator, one man, Moses. And he's done so miraculously. He inflicts the plagues upon the Egyptians and, and he confronts and ultimately defeats Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, miraculously saving his people. He miraculously parts the waters of the Red Sea. We saw that two Sundays ago, uh, delivering them from Egypt he miraculously provides for their food and their water needs while they are wandering in this desert wilderness. But throughout this entire thing, we've repeatedly seen that God's people, though seeing and witnessing and experiencing and benefiting from all of this miraculous salvation, they are still having trouble trusting God. They're still having trouble trusting him for what he's going to do next based on what he has just done recently. And so, rather than uh, leading them straight to the promised land the place that he promised to take them, God leads them initially in the exact opposite direction. He's going to lead them to an encounter with him on Mount Sinai, which is kind of the, the theological high point of the entire book of Exodus. And we're going to get there next Sunday. Because while we're on this journey and we're seeing God miraculously provide and the people complain and, and their faith is kind of wavering and we're on our way to this climactic encounter with God that is supposed to cement the hearts of his people to him, before we get there, we get today's scene in Exodus chapter 18. And it's a scene in which God uses an unlikely messenger to teach both Moses and all of the people an important lesson. And the lesson is simply this. Congregational ownership of ministry is essential for God's people to grow healthy and strong. That's really the point of this passage and how it fits into the flow of the Exodus narrative. It's an important lesson. It's a, it's a chapter that I, I, I find kind of interesting um, in that it feels unusual to me, at least at first glance. Uh, it, it reads a little bit like an organizational chart. You know, if you've ever read through Exodus chapter 18, it's all about Moses appointing these leaders, we just heard the passage read, to kind of help him um, administrate civil cases within the nation of Israel so that it doesn't all fall on one man. And yet, God, it seems like a perfectly, perhaps logical thing to do, but why would God devote an entire chapter to laying out in all the details all of the dialogue that takes place in here? 
That's the very first question I asked myself when I started preparing for this morning. Why is this not a single verse referencing, oh, by the way, they, uh, they organized themselves a little better? Yay, can we get to Sinai? Like, it, it feels like something that maybe isn't that important, and yet God thinks it's important enough not only for the Israelites, but for all of us, that he spills a whole chapter's worth of ink describing this to us. And so there may be some things here for us to learn. I think there are. The chapter kind of breaks down into two parts that are, are roughly equal. The first, about 40%, maybe about a 40-60 split. Verses 1 through 12 are really kind of setting up the main event. And in those verses, the setup is that we get an unlikely messenger that's going to convey the message that God has for his people to Moses and his people. And the unlikely messenger is none other than Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, a guy we've encountered before in the earlier chapters of the book of Exodus, when Moses went and lived with Jethro's father-in-law for many years before being called into the ministry that God called him to. Well, Jethro here reappears in the first few verses of the chapter recount the fact that here's Jethro off in his land of Midian, which is on the other side of Mount Sinai from Egypt. So it's a ways away, but, but he's hearing the rumors of all the miracles that God did, the, the plagues and the parting of the Red Sea and all of that kind of stuff. The, the word is spreading that the God of the Israelites is on his side and all the other nations around are taking notice. And so this word gets to Midian as well. And so Jethro's father-in-law hears of this great salvation that God is doing through his son-in-law, for his own people. He hears about it secondhand. Uh, moreover, the, the, the chapter starts recounting how Moses had sent his wife and his two sons back to live with his father-in-law during the time of the plagues, perhaps for their safety. And Moses' own sons bear the names of, of sojourner and God is my help. That's what their Hebrew names meant. And so even the names of his, his grandsons reflect the fact that God is helping his people while they are living in a foreign land. And so he's heard secondhand that God is doing all this great stuff. So as Moses and the Israelites now get closer to Mount Sinai, Jethro goes out to meet him. And they meet each other and they embrace and they welcome and they go into the tent and they, they get caught up. And he gets to finally hear firsthand. He says, Moses, tell me, I've heard all these rumors. Dude, what is going on? Nobody Facebook live streamed that thing for me. You've got to tell me. And so Moses, like, he just downloads the whole thing on him. He's like, yeah, this is what happened. And then this happened and this happened. And now Jethro is getting the story firsthand. Now, the climax of this, the, the importance of this first part of the chapter comes in his response. If you're in Exodus chapter 18, look at verse 9. It's in his response that we see the key here. Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel in that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro said, Blessed be Yahweh, the name of the Israelites' God, who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered his people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that Yahweh is greater than all gods because in this affair they, they, the Egyptians, dealt arrogantly with the people, the Israelites. And then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron, Moses' brother, came with all the other elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. Jethro's response is that he gives God the appropriate honor that his name is due for being God. He gives him honor because of his salvation. He says, I see what God did, and that shows that he is the true God, which is interesting because several times throughout this series we've pointed out that God had that as his explicitly stated purpose for doing the miracles. Back in chapter 6, 
that was very clear, chapter 6, verse 7, that, that he wanted his own people, the Israelites, to see. He said, they're going to see these miracles and then they will know that I am God. And what's more, in chapter 7, God said, the Egyptians will see these miracles and then they will know that I am God. And yet the Egyptians continued to resist that and the Israelites continued to struggle to believe it. And here's Jethro, this Midianite pagan priest who looks at God's salvation and says, wow, he's really God. This is a guy who, who he got the message. He gets the point. He has no trouble seeing what God did and therefore acknowledging him for who he is. And what's more, he submits to his greatness. Verses 11 and 12 are, are somewhat shocking in, in, contrast, in context. Excuse me. He says, Now I know that Yahweh is greater than all gods. But stop the ship. Pause. Time out here. Whoa. Wait a second. We know from earlier in Exodus who Jethro is. He's not an Israelite. He's from Midian. He's what they call a Midianite. He's a different people group. And he not only is not one of God's people ethnically, but he actually worships foreign gods, which is sort of what it meant back in that day, that the fact that you were from another nation wasn't just a comment on like your ethnic heritage. It was on your worldview. It was on your religion. He was a worshiper of false gods, small g gods. And what's more, he wasn't just a worshiper of false gods. He was a Midianite priest. That means he was a professional worshiper of false gods. In fact, it was his job to help other people worship false gods. And this is the guy whom God chooses to communicate to Moses, his spokesman, what God's will for his people is. Jethro is a very unlikely messenger, but as different as he is, he's not an Israelite, he's a Midianite, he is a formal, he's not a worshiper of God before now, he is a formal worshiper of false gods, but there's one thing that's very clear in this passage. Jethro has what we might call a come-to-Jesus moment, okay? <laughs> Except this is before Jesus. He's got a come-to-Yahweh moment. <laughs> he sees who God is based on what he has done and then he says, now I know that Yahweh is greater than all gods, including my gods, including the gods that I've spent my whole life worshiping. They've never done that kind of stuff. <laughs> no, no, no. Your God is the real God. And what's more, he brings a sacrifice, which in that context, in that culture, would have been a way of, of, of honoring the gods and submitting to the gods and acknowledging their greatness. So he brings a sacrifice to God now, and he has a meal with Moses and Aaron, all the other leaders of Israel, eating that sacrificial meal before God. It says, this is Israel coming together with Jethro, and we're all together saying, Yahweh is God. <laughs> the guy has totally converted. He understands who God is. And I think there's a point here. What do we get out of this unlikely messenger? We haven't even gotten to the message yet, but we find something from the messenger, and that is this principle. God will speak and work through anyone and everyone who bows to him as Lord. That's going to become really important for the message God is about to give through Jethro. That, that Moses needs to share leadership, that the Israelites need to understand that there isn't just one guy that they need to depend on, and the guy who brings that message is an actual embodiment of the message. I'm the last guy you should expect to hear from through God, and yet here I am, and God is using me to speak to you, his people. I'm not even one of you, and yet God is using me to teach you. Why? Because it's not all about the person with the credentials. 
It's not all about the person with the right pedigree who, who comes from the right families and has the right um, Israelite ethnic heritage or who's gone to church all their life. It's not the person who's gone to theological school to study the Bible who is the only person we can rely on to speak to us. God will work through anyone and everyone. Everyone who bows to him as Lord. In fact, as we're going to see, that's exactly his intent, is to work through everyone who calls him Lord. The New Testament picks up this idea, repeatedly teaching that every member of a local church has a role to play in order for the church to be the church. Like the church can't be the church unless all of its members are doing what they're doing, not just pastors and elders and, and, and people in, in leadership offices. Uh, for example, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, a well-known passage likens a, a church congregation like us to a body, a physical body, lots and lots of different members, lots of different parts. They all look different. They have a different function, but they're all connected together. The Apostle Paul writing that passage goes so far as to say that, that every one of us individually are members of one body. You see, the, the mindset shifts. The New Testament is trying to reframe the thinking of an individual who gathers in a local assembly to worship my own God with these other people and say, no, no, it's not about me just worshiping my God. I am individually a member of one body to the point where that passage goes on and says, when one member suffer, all will suffer. And when one uh, rejoices, we all rejoice together. Every single member of God's family is needed. Now, this was a significant message at a time for the Israelites when they were, you might say, over-professionalized. In their eyes, only Moses could speak for God. I mean, after all, there's only one Moses, right? I mean, come on, he's Moses. <laughs> he saw the burning bush. Um, he gets God's words directly to him. Nobody else can say that. So in their minds, Moses was a completely set-apart figure from everybody else, and they were relying on him. So how delightfully ironic. It's part of the, the rich um, complexity with which the narrative of Exodus is woven together. How delightfully ironic that God now speaks to Moses through an incredibly un-Moses-like, foreign, non-Israelite, pagan priest. You get the message, Moses? Jethro is the very embodiment of the message he's about to deliver. Well, that kind of leads us into the main message then. What is the heart of this passage from verses 13 on down to 23? The, the flow of the dialogue follows a fairly simple pattern. Jethro looks at Moses, his son-in-law, and says, um, your model of leadership is bad, and he pulls no punches, and it's going to have a bad result. And then he proposes a better model of leadership, with a better result. That's just kind of the flow. It's kind of two-parter. This is a bad model for these reasons. Let's propose a better model for these reasons. So let's just kind of follow the thinking here and see what we can take away from this today. First of all, he starts by pointing out that, that the process Moses and the Israelites are following at this point is a bad model of leadership. The stage is set because uh, Jethro is temporarily hanging out with Moses, and so they have the big dinner. So the next day, Moses gets up and just goes back to work. And it turns out that work, in verse 13, is sitting from morning until evening, listening to the people. 
And they stood around Moses, judge, and he was judging them. He was judging their disputes. This was probably had to do a lot with interpersonal relationships and, and legal disputes. They are a people group, but they're not yet formalized as a nation with laws and court systems. And so when disputes arise between people, well, they just got to, and they can't resolve them, they got to go to Moses, right? And so that's what they're doing. And he's doing that like from morning till evening without a break. Verse 14 says, when Moses' father-in-law saw what he was doing for the people, he said, what is this that you are doing from the people? Yes, that question is rhetorical. (laughs) He's not inquiring, gee, I don't understand what's going on here. He's like, dude, what are you doing, man? This is crazy. This is crazy. What are you doing? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? Look at Moses' response, verse 15. Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God. I do this because it's what they want. It's what they expect. So it's what I do. I mean, when they have a, a dispute, they come to me and I decide between one person and the other and I make, to know, uh, I make them to know the statutes of God and his laws. And so what we have here is a picture where Moses is spending all of his time individually mediating problems and issues with individual people and families and trying to insert some instruction about who God is in the midst of that teaching, right? You guys have this dispute, I'll resolve it, and let me show you why God wants us to do it that way in the hopes that, that those couple of families who had that dispute might learn a little something about God, and maybe they would or maybe they wouldn't because they're just care to, caring about their dispute. They're not really willing to listen to a Bible lesson. But even if they do learn, it's only those families. When do the rest of the people learn? Like it's never happening. All his time is going into dealing with these individual cases. And this is a classic case of what we might call an an overly professionalized ministry. That's probably what the slide should actually say rather than just professionalized. Uh, Maybe capital P, professionalized, over-professionalized ministry. I've thrown that term around a couple of times. What do I mean by that? Um, This is what I mean by it. An overly professionalized ministry is when the majority relies on one or a few specially qualified people to make all the decisions, own all of the needs, and do most of the work. When the majority relies on a few highly qualified people to really own it, and we're just kind of along for the ride. That's an over-professionalized way of being the people of God. The leader is the provider, members are consumers. That's what was going on here in ancient Israel. There's only one guy who can give us what we need, and so we got to go to him to get what we need. Not at all a surprise to us in modern America, where we live in such a highly professionalized consumer society that's built on a professionalized consumer economy. We pay experts to take care of everything, from healing our bodies, to fixing our cars, to painting our houses, to filing our taxes. And there's nothing wrong with any of that, ethically or morally. But that mindset in a modern context like ours can become so ingrained that I often wonder if it bleeds over into our assumptions about church without us even realizing it. We're not even thinking about it. We're definitely not trying to think that way. But maybe it's just our default assumption. You know, pastors and elders are there to provide music and preaching and and care and discipleship, and that's what a church is supposed to be, and we, the members, are there to receive that and benefit from that. And oh, how we love the ones that do it well, and we find the churches that do it well for us. 
And often we don't even realize we're doing it. We definitely didn't mean to, but we sort of slide into this like church consumer mentality where I'm here to receive the benefits from what others are providing. It's not really on me to make all that happen. It's on them. But I'm happy to come be a part of it and benefit. Well, this is a bad model. And Jethro goes on quite explicitly in verses 17 and 18 to explain why it's bad. It's going to have a bad outcome. And the outcome he identifies is perhaps half expected and half surprising. At least that's my initial response to it. Let's see what you think. Verse 17. Moses' father-in-law said to him, What you are doing is not good. Thank you for sugarcoating that and softening that blow. Poppin' law. <laughs> he comes out and says, Dude, you are off base. This is not working. You've got to cut it out. But then he tells him why. Verse 18. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice. And God be with you. You shall represent the people before God. Oops, I'm sorry, I skipped a verse. Verse 18. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out for the thing is too heavy for you. You're not able to do it alone. Well, he pulls no punches in talking to Moses. He's very clear. This is not good. You've got to stop this. But then he tells him why. And interestingly, he says, if you don't stop doing what you're doing, two groups of people are going to suffer. The first group is, well, you. It's just one person. You're going to, man, you're going to kill yourself. You're going to die young. You're just going to flat wear yourself out. And that's probably pretty obvious. Moses endlessly trying to meet everyone's needs. He is not God. He cannot do that. He will run out of time. He will run out of emotional energy. He will run out of spiritual wisdom at some point. No matter how anointed for the task he is, he's still human. He simply can't do it. So maybe it's obvious that, yeah, if Moses keeps this pace up, you know, five years from now, he's going to have ulcers and all kinds of problems, you know? But interestingly, Moses isn't the only one who's going to suffer. Israel, he says, will also wear out. Did you catch that? Verse 18. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out. He's like, Moses, this is not a good way to meet the needs of God's people either. Your needs aside for a moment, they're going to suffer. They're going to wear out. Now, why would this leadership model, I guess we could call it that, wear out God's people? Probably not too hard to use a little bit of imagination to figure that out. I can't imagine what the line was like at you know, 6.30 in the morning when Moses came out of the tent to start hearing cases. Did it wind a quarter mile? Half mile? <laughs> You know, we've got thousands and thousands and thousands of Israelites. I'm sure there were dozens, if not hundreds, of problems going on all the time. How many of these things could he bang through in a single day? And is he, if he's just trying to bang through them, is he really doing a good job hearing the case and seeking the Lord and connecting with the people? I, you know, it's, it, there's nothing more frustrating than saying, like, I've got a dispute with my neighbor, and, and we can't resolve it, and so we're living next to each other, and we're angry. I know, we're going to go to Moses. Great, he'll be with you in nine months, two days, and 14 hours. okay, so what do we do in the meantime? I don't know. Hang out. Well, that, that's the problem. We're hanging out next to each other and we can't get along. So what happens when people have a conflict and it just goes unresolved? Does it just get better? Does it just get swept under the carpet? No, the carpet gets lumpy and people start tripping over the lumps, right? 
Um, we, get, we get frustrated. Um, we, we, our hearts kind of calcify. We've got more time to get set in our ways and rehearse in our minds why we're right and this guy's wrong. And of course, he's over there doing the same thing to me. And so I just see him more and more as the enemy. And actually, just as time goes on through neglect, like the conflict widens and becomes worse and our hearts become more opposed to each other. Maybe, maybe there's even temptations to kind of take some things into our own hands. I know I can't trust this guy. He's already defrauded me. So the next issue that comes up, I'm going to make sure that, that I go way out of my way to get one up on him. We haven't even resolved the first one yet. And now he feels doubly attacked because now I've committed in his mind you know, a second wrong. But I think I was justified. And so we get this deepening bitterness and increasing strife. And what does that do to the life of the nation? He's like, this is the kind of, of community you are going to produce if you are the only person, Moses, that can meet everybody's needs. The people are going to wear out. It's going to break down their life. There will be strife, bitterness, and an overall breakdown of the community. This apparently was a pretty important issue. It's a bad model with a bad result, not just for Moses, but for God's people. And right now, our elders and our staff at Harvest have been talking for a few months, and we think that this is a really important conversation for us to have in the life of our church right now. So I want to address especially those of us who are Christians and for whom this is our church home. If you're newer with us, um, we just invite you to kind of listen in on the conversation. This is kind of who we are and where we're at. We've done a lot of evaluating of where we need to grow as a church, what God is doing, what we're excited about, and where we think we need to grow. And, and, and through the, the course of doing that kind of conversing and, and, and looking at our church, for a couple of months, God has brought a couple issues to the forefront. And guys, this is one of them. This is one of them. We feel like we have not been as good as we ought to be and want to be at leading our attenders to become members, consumers to becoming producers, and then empowering our members to contribute to and lead ministry. We, we never set out <clears throat> to not be good at that. It sort of feels to us as my own words, but I'm speaking for our elders and our staff when I say this. We've sort of slid into, as a church, a model in which we're probably a little bit over-professionalized, a little bit too reliant on identified and sometimes paid people to own the ministry, make the decision, and be sure that everything is happening. I don't think anybody set out to have that happen. It's just kind of where we find ourselves. And if this is your church home, you need to know that we're looking as, as church leaders in the mirror first to say, like, what, what, is it, what is incumbent upon us to change that? Uh, we're committed to doing a better job of empowering our members to contribute to and own ministry in all of our relationships and in all of our organized areas of ministry this next year because that's a much better way forward. You've already heard some about that. You'll continue to hear more about that. And we celebrate the members of our church figuring out how God has wired them and contributing to doing ministry according to the vision that he has given our church leaders to follow. Because that's a better way forward. And that's where the passage goes next. We, we've looked at the bad model and the bad result. And, and in just a moment, we get to look at the good model, the better model with a better result. Just before we get there, I, I, wanna, I think it's worth noting one thing before we make this transition. The Israelites in this passage, and not any other passage in Exodus I'm aware of either, certainly not in this passage, they are never chided or berated for putting their hopes in a single man. They're never taken to task for wanting 
one guy to come save them. In fact, when God said, I'm going to save my people, we saw this back in chapter 3, the first thing he did is he went to Midian and he grabbed Moses and sent that one man to be his representative. So it seems like God intends to primarily lead and save his people through this one Savior servant. They're not being sort of accused here of saying, you, you, shouldn't, you shouldn't depend on one man, because if we thought that, if we think that's what Exodus 18 is about, we run the risk of misunderstanding the entire point of not only this chapter, but the whole Bible. Because if the problem is that the, the Israelites were just relying on one man, and they should rely on many people, then the solution is, oh, the salvation for God's people comes in a plurality. We are our own saviors. We need to become self-reliant, not just on one highly paid hero, but we need to rely on everybody. It's a group effort. And our idolatry would shift from one person to the group. No, actually, the problem wasn't that they wanted a single Savior. The problem was the one that they were trying to make the Savior. He wasn't up to the task. So the message in the text is not stop looking at Moses and now become reliant on the whole community. The message in the text, we just read it, Moses, you are not able to do it alone. That's the problem. That's the problem. Moses is human. Moses is not omnicompetent. He can't do everything. He just can't make it happen. That's why it's going to wear him and the people out. We need somebody greater than Moses. And it's instructive that later, early in the book of Deuteronomy, God told Moses that he would send another prophet like you. He says, you're going to die, and I'm going to send my people another prophet like you in some ways, but this prophet is going to succeed where Moses failed. He's going to succeed in leading my people to me and leading their hearts to me and leading them to eternal glory in the eternal promised land of heaven. God told his people to wait for a true and greater Moses who was up to the task. And during this Christmas season, we celebrate the fact that Jesus was born to fulfill that promise. Fully man, yes, but also fully God, which Moses and no other man could ever claim. And because he is God in human flesh, he has the ability to meet every need of his people. He has the ability to atone for every sin of his people. And he has the ability to meet not only the needs of thousands, but countless millions of people and lead them to eternal glory. And he doesn't need anybody's help with that. And so he suffered and died alone. And that death is sufficient for you and me and every other one of the billions of people that live on this planet. He is the true and greater Moses who can lead us to forgiveness, to life change, and to eternal hope right now. And so I hope, nothing else, if nothing else, during this Christmas and Advent season, even as we walk through the book of Exodus, we catch the heart of how the Bible is pointing us toward the true and greater Moses who can meet our deepest heart's longings, and that is Jesus Christ. If you'd like to know what it means to have eternal hope in Christ, I encourage you to talk to a Christian friend maybe that you came to church with or come down front. Some of our elders and ministry staff leaders will be up here. We would love to have a conversation with you about that. So now having shown why the, the professionalized Moses figure model is a bad idea, because Moses just doesn't have it in him. 
while we're waiting for that promised Savior to come and save us, how are the people of God to organize themselves? Well, now Jethro proses a better model with a better outcome. Verses 19 and 20 start. The better model has to do with two things, Moses' role and the role of some other leaders. Moses' role in verses 19 and 20 is very specific. He says, all right, Moses, obey my voice. I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God, and then you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make known to them the way in which they must walk and what they must do. There's one significant difference between what Jethro just said Moses should do and what he was doing before. What he was doing before was focused almost exclusively on individual, small situations that arose individually within the lives of the people. What Jethro is talking about now is you need to represent God to all of the people. In fact, he tells Moses he's got, he's got two things to do. First of all, he needs to uh, represent the people to God. In, in a nutshell, he's saying, Moses, you need to devote your time to prayer really, which clearly wasn't happening when from morning till night, you're just dealing with one case after the other. It's like your back is to God and you're facing the people all day long. When are you praying? He's like, dude, your job by God is to be the representative of the people. So you need to spend your time bringing their cases and their needs before God. You need to be turned and facing him sometimes because that's part of your role as the go-between. And then secondly, you need to teach the people. Well, he was kind of teaching them before, individually, within the context of these disputes and cases that would arise. But Jethro says, you need to teach the people, all of them. Somebody's got to teach everybody, even those that aren't currently dealing with a dispute, who God is and what God expects of them. How can they be the people of God if they don't know what God said? Who's supposed to tell them? You. When are you doing that? Well, I might have a little bit of time between cases, between 3.15 and 3.30 today. It wasn't happening. He said, Moses, that's why this is bad. You are being kept from doing your job as God's representative to the people. And so Moses' role is to preach and to pray. He says, devote the vast majority of your time, seems to be the implication, to preaching, to teaching the people God's truths, and to praying, representing the flock of people before God. It's interesting how many of the principles that are in this chapter the New Testament picks up. Uh, the context is different. Ancient Israel was a, a theocracy. They were talking about implementing a civil court system, basically, is, is what's going on here. And, and in the New Testament churches, it's not, a, it's not a, a whole nation. Churches exist within lots of other societies. But the leadership principles are taken over from the Old Testament to the New Testament, unaltered and just applied to a new context. It's one example of this, a real clear example, comes from Acts chapter 6. There, the apostles, who were serving as the first elders, the first pastors of uh, the church in Jerusalem, were asked by the members of the congregation to intervene and fix a growing dispute that was arising in the church. Uh, some of you know the story, a, a benevolence ministry whereby um, economically deprived widows in the church were being provided food and material support by the church. Well, some of the Jewish widows and some of the non-Jewish widows, there started to be accusations of, of favoritism over who, which group was getting better treatment, and there was a lot of concern about this, and so they brought it to the leaders. They're like, you guys got to help us figure this out, and their response to the problem was quite interesting. They said, we're not going to get involved. And they didn't just say that because they didn't care. Nor did they say it because they were being negligent. They said it because they had vision. What they actually did is they said, we're not going to get involved. i tell you what we're going to do. 
we're going to appoint other leaders for that task and empower them to fix it because it wouldn't be right for us to neglect the ministering of the word in order to go minister the food. You see, those, those first apostles, those first leaders of that first church recognized we don't have unlimited resources, even though we're the apostles. We're the guys who hung out with Jesus. We're the guys through whom Jesus has even worked some miracles, but we're still just people. We can't meet all your needs. And so if we get involved in mitigating this dispute, it's going to take so much time and so much energy from us that we're going to neglect our responsibility to teach God's word to the whole congregation. And we can't do that. That wouldn't be right. So we're going to focus on our job. We're going to preach and we're going to pray. And then we're going to appoint leaders and empower them to wade into that and get it fixed because it is a problem and it needs to be fixed. And that's what they did. They empowered other leaders from within the church. Those are probably history's first deacons in terms of a church office to address the individual need. And by the way, that requires... Leaders, that requires people that are willing to step into that role, which gets right into the second part of, Moses, uh, of Jethro's better model. First of all, he tells Moses, you should be doing this with your time, not that. You need to focus on prayer and on teaching. And then you need to empower some other leaders. Other trustworthy men were to decide the cases and apply God's laws to individual situations, verses 21 and 22. Moreover, look for able men from all the people. Men who fear God and are trustworthy and hate a bribe and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens, and let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they, the judges, not the people, will bring to you, but every small matter they shall decide for themselves. Part of the solution was to empower these other trustworthy men to apply God's laws to situations in the lives of God's people. And only when a case was too uncertain or the judge didn't understand how God's law applied would they appeal to Moses and say, hey, I need your help. Help me understand how to handle this case. And Moses would come alongside that judge and help him figure it out. But otherwise, the judges were taking care of that. And once again, this is the other side of not only Acts chapter 6, but the New Testament picks up this idea again repeatedly as well. Uh, many places, I think of Ephesians 4, 11 through 16, where the Apostle Paul, writing to a first century church, uses the same principle of modern church polity when he describes the role of the leaders of the church as equipping the saints to do the work of ministry, which is building up the body of Christ. So these, these pastors, these elders, these church leaders, their primary job isn't to build up the body of Christ, it's to equip the people in the body of Christ to build up the body of Christ. It's interesting to look at what's happening in Exodus 18 from the perspective of Moses, which is pretty clear because it's kind of a dialogue between Moses and Jethro. Like from Moses' perspective, this is obvious. Hey, this would be good. It would take some of the burden off my shoulders. It's pretty, pretty clear and easy to see the impact this was going to have on him. But what is implied in the text, although not explicitly talked about a lot, is what about these, these judges, these leaders? whom Moses and the other elders of Israel kind of went out and said, hey, I need you to be a captain of 100. I need you to be a chief of 50. I need you to basically be a judge in this kind of burgeoning nation and this early shot at, at a justice system in this theocracy where all of our justice is supposed to be rooted in God's word. I need you to fill that role. Now, what did that require from those guys? Well, it required a number of people who were willing to step into this role. You know, to take time away from 
the conference championship game on Saturday to investigate somebody else's dispute. I mean, you think about what this meant. It meant you had to have people who were willing to sit with other people who are hurting and listen to their hurt and kind of take on some of their troubles, husbands and wives that, that weren't getting along and wade into the mess of their family, uh, neighbors who were disputing over you know, property or whatever, and, and kind of wade into it and take on that trouble and get involved with them in order to encourage them and apply God's words to them and help them resolve it when they could have been out on the 11th green with their buddies. I mean, this required some people of vision. People who are willing to invest themselves, their time, their emotion, their energy, their wisdom into the lives of their fellow Israelites. Required people who have the mindset of being producers, not so much consumers. As I got to tell you, this happens in our church, and most of the time it relates to individual people with individual circumstances, and so we can't really bring them up here and advertise them, but part of, part of my heart and, and, and frustration with that, even though that's right and appropriate, is that it can create the impression that that never goes on. I, I've talked to enough people that, that I know that our church can give off a sense that kind of like everything just seems to be taken care of sometimes and I don't really have anything to do. And those of us kind of behind the scenes are going like, we're going crazy, there's all kinds of things to do. And, and so on a morning like this, I just want to emphasize that, that this kind of thing happens in this church and when it does, it is among the most beautiful things I see in pastoral ministry. With, with no details or identifying information, let me just tell you, just recently... I was approached by some people in the church asking me if there was anyone who could give them input into some of the challenges that they're facing. I said, I think I know somebody. Let me get back to you. I went and I talked to some other members of our church and said, hey, would you be willing to spend time with these people? Get involved in them. Get into what they're dealing with. Walk with them in it. Encourage them in it as brothers and sisters in Christ. Would you be willing to do that? You're not, you're not paid to be here. You're not going to get any kudos for it. Nobody's going to pat you on the back. Like, would you be willing to do this? And they said yes. And that's making this the kind of church where when people have real needs there's somebody there to walk with them in it. That's the kind of church I want to be a part of. What about you? That's what we ought to be. But I realize we're not that unless there's people of vision willing to say, I'm going to step into the gap and, and, and invest myself. I'm going to be available. I mean, creating that kind of a church doesn't require polished, charismatic preaching impressive professional music and lighting or the slickest youth program in town. It requires members who are producers, not consumers. That's what it's about. It requires you. Maybe God wants you to lead a community life group for us. It's always a lot easier to say, I'm glad to attend one. It's great. You get to know people. Somebody else kind of takes care of the responsibility of the thing. But if those people weren't there taking care of that responsibility, we wouldn't have community life groups. Maybe God wants you to do that. Maybe God wants you to be a marriage mentor. We've got some training. We've got some people that can help equip you for that task. You don't have to have a perfect marriage, but you've got to be married and a solid marriage and love Jesus. And would you be willing to pour your time into others? Maybe God wants you to, to teach our kids the truths of the gospel in our Sunday school program. 
We've got some incredibly visionary people who leave this service once a month to go teach our kids. We've got the curriculum. It's all laid out there. We've got training. What we need is servant-oriented people who say, I want to do this, and I love the fact that they do it. I'll be honest. We need some more. Some people of vision to say, I want to pour myself into making sure that my church is a place where kids are loved and safe and come to know how much God loves them. We can lean back as consumers, assuming somebody else will take care of all that, and it's not really on us. Or we can lean in as producers and actively seek where God could use our time, energy, and gifts to make Harvest a place where people are seen when they walk in the door, connected with, loved, and told the gospel of Christ. Friends, there's one more perspective before we end that I think is worth considering for just a moment. Another implied perspective, and that's the perspective of the people. We've looked at kind of Moses' take on this, how it impacted him. We've looked at maybe these leaders who were recruited to serve as judges. But, but what about the average Israelite? What did this change for them? Implementing a system like this completely changed their experience as a member of the family of God. I mean, think about it. Up until this point, it was like, hey, if you have a problem, you get to go to Moses. That was pretty cool. Now, it might take you nine months in line to get there, but at least in principle, you can go to Moses. Now we're putting in a system where it's like, okay, Moses, off your radar screen. Let me introduce you to Fred. (laughs) Fred's a good guy. Any problems, concerns you have, you take him to Fred. He's your chief of 50 or whatever it is, you know. Who the blazes is Fred? Right? I mean, it's like, no offense. I'm sure Fred's a good guy. But Fred never threw a stick down and saw it become a snake. <laughs> Moses did that. <laughs> Fred never stretched his hand out over the water and saw it part. Moses did that. Fred never stood in front of a burning bush that didn't burn and spoke to God face to face. Man, Moses did that. I want Moses to know my world and my problems and to speak God's truth into it. I don't really want to go to Fred. That's thinking like a consumer. You can think of it, the change that it impacted them negatively or positively. Like negatively, they had to give up the right to access Moses directly. That's kind of a negative way to put it, but maybe that's how some of them felt. I don't know. Verse 22 makes it clear that that they didn't have that right. It says the judges will judge the people at all times, and every great matter um, that they, in other words, they can't figure it out themselves, they shall bring to you, Moses, the the judges. The the people didn't have the right to appeal their case straight to Moses. Only the the, the judges could bring the cases to Moses. So they had to give up that, that direct access. But thinking about it maybe more positively, they had to be willing to receive leadership from other trustworthy, godly Israelites because they understood the bigger picture. And the bigger picture is where we're going to end this morning. This is not only a better model, it has a better outcome, verse 23. If you do this, God will do, three things happen. God will direct you, you will be able to endure, and all this people will also go to their place in peace. This better outcome promises improvements both for Moses and the people. For Moses, it says, basically, it's, you will fulfill God's commission for you. I think that's what the language there means at the beginning of verse 23 when it says God will direct you or commission you is what the word means. Of course, God had already commissioned Moses, but he'd commissioned Moses to be the go-between between him and his people, and Moses wasn't doing that because he was spending all his time in, you know, mitigating individual cases. And so he's saying, this is Moses, this is going to allow you to be what God has called you to be to be the leader, to pray, and to teach the people. Secondly, you're going to not die early. (laughs) 
It'll be better for you. Other people are going to help bear the burden of the people. But thirdly, notice this. It's also going to be better for the Israelites, every single one of them. He says, all the people will go to their place. That's a reference to the promised land. They're going to make it to the end of their journey in shalom, is the word there. The ESV Bible translates that peace. It's the Hebrew word shalom. It doesn't just mean peace in the terms of like they're not fighting with somebody. It means wholeness and harmony, a thriving, unified, joyful peace. It will be a delight to be part of this people because everything is so harmonious and rich and wonderful and we're going to land in the promised land full of blessings and gratitude to God. It's the opposite of them being worn out earlier through impatience and anger and bitterness and revenge and resentment and unresolved conflicts. You see, producer Christians think about the good of the church. Like there's, there's an ownership there. It leads us to accept leadership from, from other church members, community life group leaders, and other godly and mature trusted brothers and sisters in Christ because we know that that's the kind of environment where everybody can thrive. You know, the people I mentioned just a moment ago from our church that came to me earlier, when I told them that somebody was available to give them input, I said, are you in? And they readily agreed. They readily agreed. I can't tell you what that does to my heart as a pastor. May their tribe increase. That so blesses my soul. I'm willing to hear God speak to me through anybody who will walk through me in this, as long as they're a godly person and I trust them to lead me well. Which leads to an important question as we end here. Christian, who has the authority to speak into your life? Who has that authority? And, and do you communicate to them that they have that authority? Sometimes it's easy in our community life groups or our Bible study groups to kind of inform people what's going on in our lives and ask for prayer, which not always, but sometimes is kind of a way of saying, this is what I'm thinking and doing and I'm not really interested in your opinions on it. Would you just pray that God would bless it for me? What if I'm listening to you and I'm not really sure that that's what God wants and a scripture comes to mind and I think you should consider it, but I'm not sure I should say anything because I don't know if you want to hear it. What would it look like to actually invite the perspective of other trusted brothers and sisters in Christ and consider whether their perspective may be true? Ephesians 4.16 says that the whole body, a local church, like Harvest, thrives when each member contributes. That's, that's what nourishes the body and makes it grow. In other words, congregational ownership of ministry is essential for the church to grow healthy and strong. As we wrap up here, we're going to consider lots of ways this week in our community life groups that that might work itself out practically. In fact, community life group leaders, you've got a series of suggested discussion questions for this passage. And if you want to go straight to the applicational ones or even spend all of your time there, if in your judgment that's the best place for your group to be, then, then go there. Like, how could, we, how could we work this out better in our group and in our church? For now, I want to invite the music team to come back up here. And let me just suggest as they come, Real quickly, two very specific things. If it's like, I want to be a part of, of putting this into practice, what do I do right now? One thing is our family gathering is tonight. Jordan talked about that earlier. That's a time where we can kind of lean in as consumers and say, I'll come if it's convenient or I like it or I enjoy it. Or we can lean in as producers and say, if this is my church, I need to be there. I want to meet the elder candidates. I need to know what's going on. I want to speak into it and be led well by my elders and then contribute well as well to where we're headed as a church. I want to encourage you to make that a priority. And perhaps 
the reason we introduce elder candidates is because our members have to approve annual budgets and church leaders. And maybe it's time for some of you, if you've been a Christian and this is your home church for a long time, maybe it's time for some of you to formally join the church in membership. We've got a membership class next Sunday. There can be any number of reasons why a Christian might have hesitations about that, which is fine. I encourage you, come to the membership class. Let's open up the Bible together and talk about what formal church membership means and at least have the conversation with us about what's going on here and why this is such an important thing in the view of the elders here at Harvest. And for others of us, maybe it's just, I can be here without signing on the dotted line, but it's possible that for some of us, that's a reflection of more of a consumer mindset. Maybe being a producer is to say, I'm going to go on record and say to my elders and the rest of the members of this church, I'm in. Lead me. Speak into me. I will contribute. I will help this place grow. That's what God has called us to and we love him. Would you pray with me? Father God, you've called us to a place in your family that is an incredible privilege at one level. It's a weight and responsibility at another level, like all good things are working and having a job, having a family, being a part of a church. So, Father God, I pray that you would lead each one of us, wherever we're at and wherever this message meets us, whatever message you have for us, lead us to respond well. And as we respond now in song, I pray that you would receive the praise of a grateful people. For it's in Christ's name we ask it. Amen. Would you stand with us, please, as we sing to our Savior.